<clears throat> Good morning, CPC. Um, I am honored to be with you today. And um, my family and I, we've gotten a chance over the last couple of years, especially to be able to come and be a part of some of the things that you've done here. And uh, before I, I get started, I just want to say a couple things that probably you already know. All right. Um, Connection Point is a special church. Uh, I, I've I think I get to visit lots of churches. Uh, last year I was in like 74 different General Baptist churches, so I get to see a lot of churches. This is a special place. Um, you know, sometimes you can wonder if the way things seem to be on the outside is the way that they really are, and I can tell you that this church and the staff here, they're the real deal, okay? The what you see is, is, dead, is really true. Um, Darren said something about my oldest daughter got to be on an, an intern here over the summer. And really, you know, I encouraged her to come here and to be an intern because I knew that this would be an environment that would be great for her to have that first real experience of being in ministry in that way. It's a, it's a healthy place. The, the staff has got a healthy culture. And I knew she was going to be learning from a gospel-centered church and gospel-centered leaders. And so I also want to say to you, I can't say enough about your pastor here. Um, the reason that CPC is the real deal is because Chris and Lisa are the real deal. And um, over the last few years, your pastor, he's become one of my best friends in the world. He's one of the few people that I would tell you, one of the few people that I let speak into my life and uh, give me insight. And uh, he's, he's an important friend to me. And I, I know that maybe sometimes you might wonder, is, is someone who's up here on stage preaching the gospel, is, the, is that really the way they are? And I would tell you, that is who Chris is. That he is passionate about the gospel, he's passionate about you, and he is passionate about reaching this community for Jesus. And so um, I can't give many greater compliments to a pastor than to say that their life aligns with the words. But that line, that's exactly the way that Chris and Lisa really are. And that really connects directly with what I want to talk about today. You know, the title of my message this morning is... Keeping it 100. I probably need to explain that title for those of you that are my age and maybe a little older, right? Keeping it 100. Uh, I benefit from having two daughters that one is almost 20, which blows my mind, and one that's 15, which means that they are part of Generation Z. And you know what that means? I don't know what they're saying half the time, right? I'm not sure about vibing or something that slaps or what low-key taking an L means. No cap. They're now very embarrassed that their dad is up here saying these things because it just doesn't sound right in my mouth, does it, girls? Yeah. But based on what I've heard, anyway, to keep it 100 means that something, it means that someone is being truthful. That someone is being really who they are. They're being truthful to who they are. They're being authentic. In other words, uh, what you say and the way you appear is exactly what someone gets uh, whenever they encounter you. That's really who you are down deep. You are authentic. You keep it 100, meaning that you're 100% real. The opposite of that would be that you're a hypocrite, right? You know people like that, probably. That they pretend to be one thing, but in fact, they're something else, right? 
The word hypocrisy comes from the word that we use for to act or to be in a play. It's someone on a stage, right? That's a hypocrite. There's someone who isn't what, who they pretend to be. You pretend to be a caring person, but really you're just looking out for yourself. You know anybody like that? You pretend to be trustworthy, but you do that so that you can manipulate others to do whatever it is you want. There are a few things that we could do in life that are more damaging to our Christian witness than, hip, than hypocrisy. It's, it's damaging to the whole church whenever we have hypocrites. We often act like we're, you know, that maybe you, you do this. Maybe you act like you're the one who has all the answers, right? You don't. You don't have all the answers. It's okay for you not to have all the answers. It's, it's authentic to just say, I don't understand everything. I, I have a PhD in theology, and I don't know everything about God. I'm still learning all the time. I'm still learning because it's just the way things are. You can't know everything. And get this, I think that the gospel sometimes can get lost in the ratio between the volume of our words and the weakness of the, our walk. And this is something I've had to learn. Did you know that people don't really care if you're right? People don't care. Maybe this should change the way you put stuff on social media, Okay. People don't care if your views are right or not. They don't. And you're not changing anybody's mind. In fact, I think I'm right about pretty much everything. My wife says that I've been right about everything since we were married almost 27 years ago, right? No. Uh, she says I act like I'm right about everything. <laughs> not that I actually am. Um, but if you're a genuine person... If you're vulnerable and let people know, know where, what you know and you don't know, they'd be surprised at how much people actually be willing to listen. I'd also say this um, about genuineness and what's important about being the genuine Christian is that sometimes we make the mistake of thing that's thinking that how we feel in this room is the measure of being a true Christian or not. That we think that how we worship or that our, you know, our experience of worship is what makes us a Christian. And I love worship. I love getting to hear the, the music. I love to be able to worship God and to focus on him. But my enjoyment of that is not what makes me a Christian. My feelings never make me right with God or not. Feelings are just feelings, by the way, and they can be manipulated. How much my life is aligned to the words of Jesus, that's what shows whether I am a true Christian or not. My grandfather used to say this, it doesn't matter how high you jump, it matters how straight you walk. And hypocrisy then among followers of Jesus, I would tell you this, it probably is the single most significant barrier of faith to non-believers. Did you know that survey after survey shows that for those that are in Generation Z, those that are born late 90s through the early 2010, um, that authenticity is their highest value. It outpaces things like being rich or getting to have a plan for your life or not and following it. They simply want to be able to be themselves and they want others to be able to be themselves to them. 
They want to be able to be who they really are, and they want you to be really who you are. And if that's not there, then they're not going to listen. It isn't surprising then that they identify hypocrisy as the crucial crucial reason why many of them have rejected Christianity. Sometimes when you ever hear people talk about, say they talk about this, they'll say, you know, they don't like hypocrites and you might write them off and say, well, everybody's a hypocrite. You're just giving an excuse. No, whether your life is aligned or not can be the barrier to whether someone listens or not. We have to gain a hearing in order for people to be able to encounter the gospel. And let me say this too. If you're in that boat, you're one of those people that says, you know, I'm not sure about this Christianity thing because whenever I look around, what I see is people that I'm not sure if they're real or not. In fact, I look around and I see people who I think might be hypocrites or I know are hypocrites. You just really, you want to do this thing. You want to, you want to keep it 100, right? Well, I have some news for you this morning. Jesus agrees with you 100%. Jesus agrees with your assessment of the importance of being real. You see, the scriptures are very clear. And this is a little bit tough way to say this, but this, I think this is the truth. Jesus hates hypocrisy and he judges hypocrites. He hates hypocrisy and he judges hypocrites. He expects that we not only say that we are followers of him, but by being a disciple, that means that we have to show up in our actions. He doesn't put up with hypocrisy, and no matter how religious you are, hypocrites are always going to be in serious trouble in the presence of Jesus. In Matthew 25, and get near the end of that chapter, we're going to kind of camp here in this text this morning. Jesus tells us this. Beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whoever, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who were cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. 
then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Let me start with an observation from this text that it might be a little controversial. It shouldn't be, but I'm afraid sometimes that it is. We're used to a picture of Jesus where his love for everyone means that Jesus can sometimes feel a little bit soft. The most popular versions of Jesus say things say that Jesus says things, you know, that he doesn't condemn anyone, right? Or it says that Jesus loved everyone and he never judged anyone. Well, if you say that or you think that, you've never read the Bible. Look at how this text starts. It says that the Son of Man, and that's Jesus' way of talking about himself, that the Son of Man comes in his glory and sits on a glorious throne. He is the undisputed king. He has no rival. And he sits on that throne, and what does he do? He comes to judge. This is what he does. All people are gathered before him, and it says, and he he separates them as a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats. So the first point that that we hear from Jesus in this text is that Jesus is the righteous judge who separates true followers from fake ones. This isn't something that's unique in Scripture. This isn't like a one-off scene either. This is like all over the place. Judgment is a common activity of God the Father and of Jesus in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. As the king, one of the primary responsibilities that the king has is to mete out justice or to bring judgment. Not only do we see that in many texts of Scripture that speak about the judgment of God, but God actually judges the kings of Israel based on whether they give out justice or don't. Nearly half of the words of the Old Testament prophets are judgment on kings for not making sure that justice is done in Israel. God is a God of justice. Let me go into that just a little bit more. You know, we all want justice. Even those who don't like God's form of justice or God's rules that uphold justice, we all still want it. I mean, we start talking about justice nearly as soon as we begin talking. Have you ever heard a child say, that's not fair, right? They already know all about this justice thing, things that are fair and that are not fair. We all have that sense We are all constantly seeking it in our lives, and it permeates all of our interactions with other people. It's the basis of society itself. We want justice, and and here's a clue to all that. The reason we want it is because God built it into us. God is a God of justice, and he built us to be people of justice. I actually think that the idea of justice or the idea of fairness is a great argument for God's existence in the first place because without him, it doesn't make any sense. God is a God of righteousness and justice. Everything God has done from the Garden of Eden all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation is about returning us to a state of righteousness and justice. The whole book is about it, the whole Bible. We have sometimes, though, this weird idea That because God loves us, that he just wants to kind of skim over sin. They like, almost like he ignores it. And nothing could be further from the truth. You see, God believes in justice so much, and he upholds it so much, that he does something himself about it. 
He does something about the injustice we experience in the world. He faces it head on and he gives his only begotten son to die on a cross to set the world right. To set you right. If he just skimmed over sin and said, you know, that's okay. Don't worry about it. That would mean that he leaves you in your sin. And that would mean that he is not a God of justice. And for God to be God, he must be the judge. He must be a righteous king. And in this text, Jesus makes it clear that this, just, this judgment that we're talking about, this justice thing, will even happen among Christians. Those that claim to be Christians, actually, this is the place where it starts. It starts among us. In the text, he talks about the sheep and the goats. And we might recognize that both sheep and goats are part of a shepherd's flock, right? So a shepherd is out here. He's got a group of animals. He's tending. There would be sheep and goats both within that grouping. Well, at some point, he's going to have to separate them out. He's going to put them into two groups. The same is true for people who claim to be Christians. God will bring justice and he will separate the two. Those that are true and those that are not. I want you to notice that the scripture doesn't say that we are sheep and goats. I mean, there's other texts where it talks about God is the shepherd and that we are a sheep. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus simply says that the shepherd looks at the characteristics of the animals and he separates them on that basis. And Jesus' judgment is like that. He doesn't say that he is a shepherd separating sheep from goats. He says that he is a king on a throne who is judging, and he does that judgment like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. You see the difference? The one who judges here isn't a shepherd among the sheep. He is a king on a throne. The point is that some Christians are true followers and others are not. And God is not going to allow the pretenders, the hypocrites, to make it. Eternal glory does not have participation trophies. And no fakers are allowed. He knows. So what makes the difference between the true follower of Jesus and the fake one? What characteristic is the basis of Jesus' judgment? You see, Jesus' judgment is based on actions rather than words. Look carefully at what he says. Those on the right are those who do certain things. And those on the left are those who fail to do certain things. Jesus doesn't mention anything about their beliefs. He doesn't say anything about how they feel about certain things. He doesn't talk about their values in terms of social issues or political tendencies. None of that seems to get any credit whatsoever. And we should be asking as we see that, we should go, why? Why is it that he's talking about these things? What's going on here? Well, this is actually a major theme that we see in Jesus' teaching throughout this Gospel of Matthew. You see, there were some Christians in the early church who did not think that their actions mattered much. They didn't see ethics as being essential to the Christian life. The New Testament, though, makes it very clear that faith alone is the basis of our salvation, right? That's what they're saying. Well, I'm saved by faith, so it doesn't matter what I do, right? 
Well, faith alone is indeed the basis of salvation. We are never going to be saved by what we do. You can never be good enough. That's not the basis of it. The basis of your salvation is always on what Jesus did on the cross. What matters is Jesus' work on the cross for us, how much he loves us, not how much we love him. That's what changes everything. However, if our faith is genuine, if he has done those things and I believe in him, if my faith is genuine, that means that I will have evidence in my life of a change. Christians don't believe in magic words, not even words and prayers. You can't say right words and get yourself there. That's not the point. We believe in life change that is a result of an encounter with God's grace. Something that comes to us and does something in us. If your life does not reflect what Jesus says that we are to do, I want to tell you this. You're in trouble. You need to go back and look at it again. You may need to go back and reevaluate your place with him. Matthew shares Jesus' words about this time after time. And I'm just going to share a few examples. There's lots more in this gospel. I'm going to start, though, back in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus starts his most famous sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew chapter 5. And some of the early words in that sermon say this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus says that he is not against the law. He's all about fulfilling that law. So rather than being loose on righteousness, he is looking for a deeper kind of righteousness in us. And in the next couple of chapters, he shows us what he means. Instead of being easy on things like murder, he says, don't even speak to someone with contempt. Thanksgiving just happened. You, did you speak to anyone with contempt at Thanksgiving this year? Right? It's an easy thing to do. Instead of ignoring adultery, he says, don't even get close. Don't even lust. He gets down to the heart of our following God's commands time after time. Don't just avoid lying, but let everything you say be the truth. Those are two different things. Don't seek vengeance on someone, but if they slap you on the right cheek, give them your left. Don't just love your neighbor, but love your enemies. Acts like giving to the poor or praying or fasting, all of those have to be done with the right heart and not simply for show. By the time we get to the end of this sermon in chapter 7 of Matthew, he goes full tilt against those who merely want faithfulness to be something that's for show. He's all after, he's after these hypocrites. 
He shares judgment for those who may say they are Christians, but they don't actually do what he says. Verse 21 of chapter 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Your right words, Lord, Lord, they're not going to do it. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You know, we often get that parable wrong because we think that the rock is having faith in Jesus. Uh, Listen to what Jesus says again. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house on rock. His judgment is based on actions, whether we do what he says or not. Through much of the rest of Matthew, we get similar kinds of stuff. All of chapter 23, for example, in Matthew's gospel, is about judgment on hypocrites, particularly the Pharisees and the scribes. At the end of chapter 24, he tells a parable about servants who are faithful and wise by doing what they are told versus those that are wicked and foolish because they don't do what they're supposed to. He ends that text with these words in chapter 24. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are some strong words, right? Even at the opening of the chapter from our text this morning, from chapter 25, Jesus tells an extended parable about ten uh, wise and ten foolish bridesmaids. The point of that story is that some had oil in their lamps and some others did not. And in light of everything else that we read in Matthew, it seems pretty clear that, that some of them had lives that were doing what Jesus said and some of them did not. Throughout this gospel, the implications are that Jesus speaks a lot about judgment for those who don't do what he says they should do. They confess them with their mouths, but their faith doesn't show up in their lives. It reminds me of some powerful words from the book of James where he speaks about faith and works. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one is to say to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. 
And then if you look at the end of that chapter, he says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Before I move on to this, the exact kind of actions that Jesus is looking for from us, uh, let me say one more thing. You know, there's this, a bad theology that sometimes creeps into Christian circles. It says that something like this, that we're basically okay as long as we confess our sins and then we can just kind of do whatever we want. Like if we just say the right words at the right time, then everything's going to be fine. But you know what? That's wanting a Savior without being willing to submit to a Lord. Believing in Jesus is important, but the devil believes in Jesus. He just won't submit to him. The scripture simply has no place for true faith that doesn't submit to Jesus. That doesn't result in transformed living. So if Jesus is the righteous judge who separates true followers from fake ones, and he bases his judgment on actions rather than words, then what kind of actions is he really concerned about? And our text again, in this case, is very clear. Showing care for others is the measure of his judgment. Notice that some really good things are not mentioned here. Jesus doesn't say anything about reading your Bible or praying or coming to worship or serving in the church or even tithing. All of those are really important things, but they don't even make it into this list. Neither is there any mention of having common beliefs, a common set of social and cultural values. None of that is the measure of his judgment. Instead, here's what is the measure of Jesus' judgment. It is common acts of human decency and love. That doesn't seem very flashy, does it? These are not expressions of extraordinary sacrifice. Instead, it's giving food to the hungry. It's giving drink to the thirsty, hospitality to the stranger, clothing for the destitute, care for the sick, comfort for the accused. The measure of being a real Christian is whether or not you love others the way God has loved you. And it is even more specific than just loving others in general, right? These are not the best people that we ever meet. These are what Jesus calls the least of these. The people who need these acts of mercy are not the rich. They're not the whole. These are the outcasts. These are the poor. These are the marginalized. And Jesus talks about them so that doing something or not doing something for them is the same as doing it for or not doing it for him. To love on the least of these is to love on Jesus. To ignore the least of these is to ignore Jesus. That's what he's saying. There's nothing very profound about any of that. It's not flashy. It's not earth shattering. And when it comes down to it, being a true disciple of Jesus is about being focused, though, simply being focused on what Jesus is focused on. So let me give you this this morning. Let me give, give you an equally ordinary challenge. How's that? I hope it's not so ordinary that you'll ignore it, though. Because here, here's the thing. Sometimes the simple stuff is the stuff that transforms us. It's not the big sacrifices that we sometimes think we can make, but it's the everyday grind of simply doing what Jesus says. So let me ask you to do this. 
I want you to make your faith tangible in some way this week. Look for a way to make it clear that you follow Jesus. You see, how do you treat a human, the human beings around you? It matters a lot to God. We often want to make our relationship with God about something that's just spiritual. We connect it with our interior life. We connect it with how we feel about God. Or we make it about our religious performances. How often we attend church. How many times we pray. What God is really looking for is compassion for people around us. That's the evidence that he wants to see from your life. We should be able to show our thanksgiving for his grace by abounding in grace for other people. And this holiday season, we're going to be, uh, we're getting ready to start up with that. I, we've already got our Christmas tree up at our house. And my wife's got a lot more planned for me, I know. But there will be lots of opportunities to do good and to love people. So much so that it almost becomes cliche, right? But seeking ways to love and to serve others is not a cliche. It's simply the way of Jesus. Loving and serving others is his way. So in a season that we want to leverage the opportunity to share Jesus with other people, what better way than to love someone like we have been loved? To love the least of these. Let me challenge you to find a way to make your faith tangible this week. Don't wait. Don't wait till it gets later in next month. We get closer to Christmas. Wait that's not an option. I want you to think about it right now, this week. And don't make it something impersonal. Don't just give your money to something. Get involved. Do something loving. Do something specific for someone specific who isn't maybe in your immediate sphere. I mean, you probably should be loving towards your family. We often all are better at that, at least. But I'm talking about finding someone who's the least of these and doing something that shows who Jesus is in you. Maybe you've got a neighbor who's grieving the loss of a spouse. Go out of your way to show them that you see them. Maybe you have someone at your work that everyone else shuns for whatever reason. Find a way to be a friend to them, even if they don't deserve it. I don't know what God may be prompting you to do, but I ask you just listen and act. At the end of a worship service, you probably can't perform an act of service right now, like what Jesus is referencing. So let me encourage you that right now, in these next few minutes, to do two things. Number one, I want to ask you to commit to something specific for someone specific. Commit to it right now in your own heart. Let me encourage you also, maybe tell someone in your life that you're going to do it. That'll maybe hold you more accountable to do it. And number two, and this is even more important, pray for that person right now. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, as the, and then the band is going to come back out, and we're going to close with the song. But during my prayer, let me invite you to pray that God would make your heart pure in your love and service to another person. And pray that God would use you to show the power of his gospel in your transformed life. 
Pray that God would allow your life to have the right kinds of characteristics that people will look at you and recognize what being a true follower of Jesus looks like.